Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I am not Amber McKinney. Amber is out this week. I am Alex Lawson. Joining me as always, my trusty co-host, Bill Donahue. Bill, how are you? Hello, hello. I'm I'm okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, that sounds right, and uh, I would say the same. Yeah, we were we were talking last week about uh, things that are horrible here in New York City. We rat were yes. pits, things of that nature. Are you talking and, about the show? Uh, I'm always talking about things that are horrible on or off the show with you. Often, but yes, we were talking about that on the show. I couldn't help but notice over social media that you purchased a Christmas tree, which is another thing in New York City that's pretty unpleasant. Yeah, um, there's a now I'm. I, I'm lucky in this regard. There happens to be a tree lot directly across the street from my house. Um, so transportation is not really an issue. Uh, the, the prices remain outrageous. Like many, we didn't even mention in terms of bad things in New York, how expensive it is here. That's almost just like a given. Goes the same for Christmas trees. I will say that um, uh, when, I, when I bought the tree, there was a Santa Claus who was out there like kind of making the rounds and he was in the getup and he had the mask on. There's sure. kids around picking out Christmas trees, and he's like, you know, kibitzing with them and taking selfies. And then, like, in the same breath, not really even trying to sort of disguise himself, he goes up to, to, to my wife and I. He's like, hey, uh, by the way, I am Greg of Greg's Trees. If you guys need any help on a tree, like, kids are around. <laughs> they can hear what he's saying. I was like, he has no commitment to the bit. Now, really obscene. I thought you were going to say that Greg. The Santa Claus was drinking because what you have buried here is that the tree lot is also basically in a bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on it's it's on the outside of a bar that's across the street from my house, and they 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 have some kind of partnership deal. And anyway, Greg is both the Santa and the tree uh, uh, maestro. So, Great. but yeah, this we're getting been... into this. We're, we're we're getting into the season, uh, uh, into the spirit of the season. So yeah, everything's good. This has uh, been a good talk about Christmas trees, but uh, yeah, we, we have could, a good. We, we, I could do forty minutes on this. I mean, this is right. on on tree talk. But. Well, we're going to get to the cheesecake factory later in the show, so maybe we got to yes. got to get to some real stuff. So um, uh, later in the show, we're going to have uh, Kelsey Griffiths on. She's our telecom whiz here at Law Three Sixty. I had a really great chat with her about um, some interesting stuff going on at the FCC. Talking about um, internet service providers and uh, the COVID pandemic, some of the you know they they promised not to cut off people's service. She has now found that uh, they maybe didn't stick to that pledge quite as closely as as one would hope. Um, but really interesting chat later on. Yeah, um, it's a super interesting topic, and she did a lot of uh, really fascinating like original reporting on it so uh there's lots to unearth there you can also tell that we're ending the uh we're really limping into the end of the year here we don't have amber today you flew solo on this week's interview i flew solo on last week's interview uh the the pro se gang is clearly in need uh uh, of a reset but there is news to talk about including uh a huge lawsuit that i'm sure that everyone has probably heard about by now but still certainly merits uh some discussion for us um so why don't you uh take it away Yeah, yesterday on uh, Wednesday, the Federal Trade Commission and nearly every state in the country filed this really sweeping antitrust uh, set of claims against Facebook, accusing the social media company of using acquisitions and other unfair business practices to crush competition and build uh, the online monopoly uh, that that they currently enjoy. Um, Following a a similar case against Google that we talked about a few weeks back and other 
you know, increasingly serious pushes to regulate uh, the big tech companies. This lawsuit is just the latest headache for um, for for Silicon Valley and the companies that 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 are there. I don't think we really need to tell everybody that this Facebook uh, company is uh, quite large and quite powerful. Uh, it feels like I remember when it used to be a big deal that like Mark Zuckerberg would be testifying on Capitol Hill, and now it feels like that happens every month. Yeah, um, and this is. Uh, of a piece with that, certainly drawing the eye of, of government regulators, and in this case, spurring litigation. But beyond, uh, what is like the sort of general shape uh, of this of this case that everybody's watching now? So the case is actually two cases. One was right. filed by the FTC, another by Attorney General attorneys general from forty eight states. Um, it's pretty bipartisan. Uh, the FTC is obviously uh, in Republican hands right now. The state case was spearheaded by a Democrat from New York, New York Attorney General Letitia James, um, and she's leading a coalition of of bipartisan attorneys general. So. Um, uh, it's a pretty broad case here. Uh, the legal claims fall into two main buckets. The first is that Facebook used a series of acquisitions, particularly um, uh, buying Instagram in yeah. 2012 and buying WhatsApp, uh, a messenger service, in 2014, uh, with the aim of eliminating potential competitors early on. The, cl- the case claims, as it must, um, that that yeah. Facebook knowingly did this to to go after competitors and to sort of um, quash competition early on. Um, the, the the lawsuit has a lot of internal emails and various things that turned up during um, the investigation. But one is a quote from Mark Zuckerberg from an internal email from 2008 that said, quote, it's easier to buy than to compete. That was sort of the um, the banner quote. Yeah. The the other bucket of accusations is that Facebook uses its um the dominant position of its main service uh to hurt companies that it couldn't buy. That you know, they allow other apps to uh third-party developers to use Facebook, you know, you've seen it where yeah. various apps can connect to Facebook, they can you can share things via Facebook. The lawsuit says that um Facebook essentially restricted those things for anyone that the um that they viewed as sort of a, a threat. Mm-hmm. Um so they cited among others uh Vine, which um the once popular video sharing app, uh they were apparently cut off from Facebook in, in twenty thirteen. Um the quote from Letitia James that sort of uh was making the rounds. For nearly a decade, Facebook has used its dominance and monopoly power to crush smaller rivals and snuff out competition, all at the expense of everyday users. So uh, perhaps most notably in terms of the basics of these cases, they're seeking a very drastic remedy. Uh, they're seeking to force Facebook to uh, to divest Instagram and WhatsApp, essentially breaking up the company, yeah. um, and and they and and to impose on Facebook future restrictions that would prevent them from making similar deals. I haven't read the full complaint. I would love to know if part of the lawsuit is uh, aiming to revive Vine. Uh, that's just a personal. Uh, that's a personal. I was a big of Vine. Vine guy myself. I don't. Uh, I don't think that's part of this. But that's neither here nor there. Obviously, lots of lots of ramifications of filing a suit like this. Like you say, the especially the remedy when you consider both the both the the requested breakup. And then also the forward-looking monitoring of mm-hmm. future transactions is really interesting stuff that's going on uh, in this suit. Do we have... There will be many filings in our future. This will go on for many years. We'll talk about the sort of path forward for the case. But as, a, as, an, as an initial matter, do we, have we heard anything from Facebook yet? I, I assume they put out some kind of statement. 
Yeah, they put out a statement on Wednesday um, saying, obviously, that they vigorously plan. They plan to vigorously fight the case. Um, they, Get out of here. What? They have been investigated for 18 months. Yeah. So they, they knew this was coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I don't think I need to tell anyone that they have plenty of money to spend to uh, defend themselves. Yeah. Um, in the statement on Wednesday, Facebook focused on uh above above all else they focus on the fact that these acquisitions had already been approved uh at the time by federal regulators so mm-hmm. um and and they they basically made the argument that the only reason they had grown into these huge units was because facebook bought them yeah um so and and they said that that it's pretty rare for uh for regulators to challenge mergers that they had already approved just a few years earlier the quote the government now wants a do-over, sending a chilling warning to American businesses that no sale is ever final. I would, I would definitely recommend everyone. There's lots of great writing about this case already, including on our side. I would definitely recommend the New York Times story by Mike Isaac and Cecilia Kang, who talked about the unique challenges of bringing a suit like this, which we've gone over a little bit here. But yeah, the the thrust of trying to do this kind of like after the fact antitrust breakup suit is like you have to argue hypotheticals that, you know, the companies wouldn't be as successful as they were had not Facebook bought them. And like you right. get you get down the rabbit hole pretty quickly on pretty advanced legal antitrust theory. But what is the this this fits into a broader picture about the government's efforts to constrain the the the, the vast power of the tech sector? How How, how does this fit in? Yeah, I think it's part of a broader, I mean, even in the terms of, you know, everyday life, the way that we are all sort of coming to grips with how big of a of a of a part of of the world these companies are. I think the pandemic has exacerbated it as people talk about, you know, how much they buy from Amazon and how much they communicate with with people they need to via their computers. Um, but it's also, you know, part of that reckoning has been on on the government side and uh you know a backlash and a mm-hmm. you know um a you know a, a a consensus seemingly a pretty bipartisan one based on the response to this lawsuit mm-hmm. um toward the idea that something needs to be done some sort of regulation is needed for these companies because they're largely operating currently without the level of regulation that a lot of people think would be appropriate for someone that is that important or for yeah. a company that is that you know integral to the way that the country functions mm-hmm. um as i mentioned earlier this case uh came just uh maybe a month after uh, a similar case was filed against Google over its dominance in search, a similar case. Um, Regulators in the EU for years have handed down billions in fines against these big American tech companies, and they are planning uh, even more regulation. And here in the U.S., uh, both both Democrats and Republicans have at this point called for, you know, for some action on this. Um, one thing we've seen is is changes to these statutes that provide these companies with a lot of legal liability, both on the copyright side, but also on when it comes to defamation lawsuits in a way that would force these companies to take, uh, you know, a different approach to how they regulate their own platforms. Yeah. Um, all of that is to say this individual lawsuit, as you just alluded to probably faces an uphill climb at the very least it's going to be a long fight for the regulators that want to win it um and i think there's a pretty good shot that facebook is not going to be broken up the way that the you know the the the, mm-hmm. the bell system was or rockefeller the the you know yeah. standard oil or whatever 
But the trend is not going away. You know, these companies are not receding in their importance in society. And I don't think that that um, we're we're moving away from the idea that um, that some sort of regulation or something needs to be done to to deal with them. We would also be remiss if we didn't provide you with uh, your semi-regular COVID litigation update. This one uh, I like to think of as coming from the creative COVID insurance litigation files. We had a judge, federal judge this week, ruled against an Arizona resort that was looking to recoup some of its losses that it incurred during the pandemic by basically by framing COVID-19 as a type of pollution uh, yeah. That 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 should have been covered by its insurer. They tried to say that COVID nineteen is itself a form of pollution, and we have a policy uh, that should cover us for that. The judge said no dice, uh, but it's just another sort of avenue to try and recoup your COVID losses uh, that, in this instance, came up short. We've seen a ton of these cases because there is perhaps no more. <laughs> central case during during this pandemic than all of these small businesses who have been you know so severely hurt by it trying to invoke their insurance to cover it mm-hmm. and we've seen all sorts of creative arguments different ways to try to get um get their their insurance to to cover it um let's get into this one and talk about what they were arguing here yeah so the the company that brought the case is um a company called it's a it's a resort company called London Bridge Resort LLC, which, uh, despite its name, is not in London, but is based in uh, scenic, beautiful Lake Havasu City, Arizona. Um, which and like like so many resorts and hotels, the hospitality industry was just walloped by COVID nineteen. Its business basically cratered when the pandemic hit. It sued its insurer. It's a company called Illinois Union Insurance, basically saying that the virus is effectively a form of pollution, like I said, that should be covered under its uh, what's called a premises pollution liability uh, insurance policy. And that that policy is, is, is what it sounds like. If your property is hindered and suffers loss from some type of pollution, uh, you can be made whole or at least recoup some, some, some uh, amount of your loss under this policy. Now, as anyone who keeps track of uh, insurance litigation knows, the the devil is always in the details about how specific parts of a policy are read and the way specific terms are defined. And I think to really underscore the granular nature of this policy, if you'll indulge me a longer passage, um, this is for the real insurance heads out there. Here is how the policy defines a, quote, pollution condition that would warrant coverage. This is directly from the policy. Uh, a pollution condition is the discharge, dispersal, release, escape, migration, or seepage of any solid, liquid, gaseous, or thermal irritant, contaminant, or pollutant, including soil, silt, sedimentation, smoke, soot, vapors, fumes, acids, alkalis, chemicals, electromagnetic fields, hazardous substances, hazardous materials, waste materials, low-level radioactive waste, mixed waste, and medical, red bag, infectious or pathological wastes on, in, or into, upon land structures, thereupon, the atmosphere, surface water, or groundwater. Um, yeah, thank you. You know, that's, that's great. Um, I'm, I'm not a hero. Uh, there are lots of heroes operating in the world today. I am just a humble Alex podcast, is so. Alex is breathing again, which I'm, I'm happy about. Yeah. Uh, so that's obviously a mouthful of like potential qualifiers for... I'm being a little glib here, but like there's a, there's a lot of things that could be considered pollution, right? Um, 
But the resort is building its case around the idea that COVID-19 itself should be considered from that list of terms either a contaminant or a pollutant. And those terms, like I say, they are included in that list, but they are not further defined uh, within the scope of the policy. And that emerged as like as the real centerpiece of the judge's decision this week about whether you could consider a viral infection to be a contaminant or a pollutant. So. so many of these uh, these these cases have been these sort of creative arguments because the you know the the baseline assumption here is that these policies do not cover this kind of stuff. So yes. yeah. it's it's so interesting to see the various ways that they are trying to find a way to get it covered. But it sounds like the judge here uh, didn't buy it. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the resort company lost pretty resoundingly. Should, uh, a, a couple things to note here. This, at least uh, by my research day, it appears to be the first time that a company tried to frame COVID as a form of pollution in the context of an insurance dispute. So it's, it's unique in that regard. But the judge who was hearing the case against a federal judge, his name is Murray Snow, he basically nodded to a bunch of case law that said that these types of clauses are meant to cover what he termed quote, traditional environmental pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that he, the, the, the case that guided him the most was actually uh, an interesting case from the Arizona Supreme Court. It was a decision from 2000 that ruled that um, fecal coliform bacteria uh, could not be considered pollution. What was that? Could you say it again? It was fecal coliform bacteria. Uh, wow. Poopy. Got it. Uh, is uh, is is not considered pollution in the, in the context of an insurance case. Now, there are different policies at play that, that case um, dealt with a policy that had a pollution exclusion clause, which is like, we will cover you for everything except for pollution. Right. And this case was about, we will cover you for pollution. But it doesn't really matter because the central, the same question is what constitutes pollution? You have to define it either way, whether it's a positive or negative uh, policy. And the judge was pretty clear that the both the case law and the general understanding of these of these policies um, does not cover stuff like this. Here's the quote from from Judge Snow. The question is whether COVID-19, a type of virus, can constitute traditional environmental pollution. The court has little trouble concluding that no plausible interpretation of traditional environmental pollution includes a virus outbreak. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, the court does not find and the parties do not provide case law finding that outbreaks are considered traditional environmental pollution. So the resort tried a couple other arguments. They said that Government agencies have used like virus and contaminant in uh, common ways in other rulemaking and other contexts. But the judge just says that's that's way too flimsy. It's a very tortured reading of what this policy is supposed to be. Um, in, his, in his mind, it's fairly straightforward. And he uh, denied uh, their effort to get covered, tossed it out the case. So as we've mentioned a couple of times, there are a ton of these cases and people are very interested to see how they how they turn out. Um, what's the upshot from this? I know it's sort of state by state, but what can we take away from this ruling? Yeah, I mean, it's been a real roller coaster. The 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 presumption that you can't get stuff covered like this is leading to all sorts of novel attempts. Uh, in October, we talked about a group of restaurants in North Carolina who were actually who were successful uh, in a somewhat unique uh, line of argument to convince the judge that the COVID-19 closures constituted a physical loss. That surprised some people who uh, really track insurance litigation very closely. A bunch of other cases percolating about 
basically businesses looking for some kind of side door through the insurance uh, litigation mm-hmm. process to recoup some losses. Uh, in this instance, at, at least, and for this one judge in the state court, that this this door has effectively been slammed shut. Um, but I don't think that that will stop uh, any business, uh, especially if they are uh, in an increasingly dire straits, uh, to continue trying uh, creative avenues like this. At the onset of the pandemic, the Federal Communications Commission pushed internet providers to promise that they wouldn't penalize customers who struggled to pay their bills. But agency records obtained and reviewed by Law360's Kelsey Griffiths show that the pledge wasn't quite as effective as the agency has since claimed. Kelsey is with me this week to discuss her findings and break it all down for us. Uh, welcome back to the show, Kelsey. Thanks so much for having me again, Bill. Sure. So... Before we get into the findings of your story, I thought it would be helpful, you know, sort of situate me, situate the listeners on what this FCC initiative was all about. What what were they trying to do? What was the point of all this? And how do they say that it went? Absolutely. So I'm going to ask you to think way, way, way back in time, back before the Tiger King era of quarantine, back to the very early days when none of us knew what this was going to look like. We were like, okay, two weeks. That sounds kind of fun. You know, I'm just going to hide out at my house. Um, Pretty soon, you know, we realized it was going to be a lot longer than that. And the FCC came under enormous public pressure to help people sort of write out what we thought was going to be a limited amount of time as people were being sent home from their offices and home from their schools um, and told you have to do everything online now just for a temporary amount of time. So the FCC came up with this industry-wide pledge called the Keep Americans Connected Pledge. And it basically had three tenants. They asked providers to commit to no disconnections for a couple months, Uh, They asked providers to commit to not charging late fees. And thirdly, to open all of their Wi-Fi hotspots to the public. Mm -hmm. So uh, this pledge began in March and it ended up being extended through the end of June. And about 800 providers ended up voluntarily agreeing um, to sign on to this pledge. Right. It was a it was a moment, you know, where not only were a lot of people out of work, but, you know, that that uh, your connection to the outside world really became your Internet connection. So it was sort of a, a two, you know, a two sided problems here that that people didn't have the money to pay for this. And it was a moment when they when they really, really needed it. So y- you dug into this this week. You know, I thought it was a, a great story, a look at sort of uh, accountability journalism. But, um, you know, it, the FCC here says that this program was a big success, but tell me what you found by looking into this and sort of walk me through how you looked into this. Sure thing. So you're right. The FCC kind of saw this as a chance for the agency and for a lot of the companies that they regulate to really shine, to get people connected, to do something good for consumers. But uh, as I found out by looking at a lot of customer complaints, about the pledge, it didn't always work out so great. So I filed a pair of FOIA requests, uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, 
with the FCC asking for consumer complaints, which are records that the FCC collects on a rolling basis through a portal on their website. Mm -hmm. So basically, if someone has beef with their internet service provider, which I think a lot of people do, (laughs) um, if they know about this portal, oftentimes they'll log on, submit a quick comment, tell the FCC what's going on. And then the FCC often works as kind of a middleman to get that complaint resolved. These records aren't typically public, but the FCC will release redacted, uh, sort of uh, cleaned up versions of these records that protect people's privacy. And you can, even if you can't get an idea of who the complainers are, you get a sense of what their issues are, where they live, and kind of a flavor of what they're experiencing and how the FCC is handling their problems. So I obtained about 3,000 of these requests that span from June through August. And I spent a lot of time just reading through them and cataloging what I found. Light Uh, reading. Light (laughs) reading, exactly. I like to put on some light uh, reality TV or Christmas movie in the background to break up some of the monotony. But uh, I eventually got through it and um, arrived at the data that I used to write the story. And what was, you know, sort of your headline takeaway from getting through these? So I think we sort of saw a contrast between corporate America and the lived experience of a lot of internet consumers. So Mm. we saw the companies who were saying we went above and beyond the FCC's pledge. We, you know, kind of put ourselves out there, possibly jeopardized our bottom line to better serve our customers. But then we have customers saying, we feel like we were taken advantage of and lied to because our cases were not resolved in a way that was favorable to us. So I think you can kind of have a um, a reality in which both are true. The companies can say they went above and beyond the pledge, but people can also say, hey, my lived experience was that I was not listened to and I was not taken care of. Sure. Now, um, what were the, I, I remember you had some numbers in your story. You you went through about 3,000 of these. It was something like 500 uh, had these negative experiences, right? Yes. So about 550 people uh, told stories that would have directly contradicted the pledges that the providers said they had kept. Now, that is not accounting for a lot of other complaints that people had that fell just slightly outside of the pledge. So Um, if I had all the time in the world, uh, I wish and all the resources in the world, I wish I could have written about these other complaints that are still related to the coronavirus response, but they just fell outside of those three tenants that, um, providers explicitly agreed to keep. Sure. And there, and you know, everyone, as you sort of alluded to earlier, pretty much everyone in America hates their cable provider. So it's not surprising that there were some complaints, but you know, 500 out of 3000 is not at all an insignificant number here. Could you walk us through, you know, getting narrowing down from these big numbers, walk us through some of these individual cases, some of the more interesting things that you found in these in these uh, complaints? Yeah. So one of the things that really stuck out to me is how small dollar amounts could really be the breaking point for an average American that's complaining to the FCC. Uh, in June, someone wrote to the FCC and said that they owed AT&T about $45. And this $45 payment meant the difference between keeping the internet on at home or choosing between buying food and medicine. So that's obviously an untenable position for any American to be put into. 
Um, I found another example where Xfinity sent a $220 overdue bill to collections. And we all know how annoying and awful bill collectors can be. Yeah. I found an example of an AT&T customer who said their service was suspended three times in one month, mm-hmm. even though they had set up a payment arrangement and AT&T had acknowledged that payment arrangement. And this person said that they felt like they were being lied to, which right. is, again, not a great vibe to be getting from your provider. Right. And it's I think it's so interesting to keep in mind here that, you know, we're not talking about that companies aren't allowed to do these things in normal times. It's that they had affirmatively promised to a certain extent for their own benefit to not do them during this time. And we're now seeing all this evidence that, uh, you know, there were many moments where they didn't quite live up to those pledges. Correct. Now, some of the other examples that I read were truly heartbreaking in that they related very closely to the coronavirus. People said they had family members hospitalized or who tested positive for the virus. Some people said they had people close to them die during the period in which they were asking their ISP to cut them a break and, you know, let them get through this hard time and then worry about their internet and phone bills. Yeah. So in July, someone wrote to the FCC and said that they had scarred lungs and a positive COVID test. And Sprint still told them at if this person didn't pay by the next day, his service would be turned off. So obviously that's not the kind of thing where you want to uh, add on to this man's woes by making him worry about his health as well as his ability to stay in touch with people. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an interesting time to be talking about uh, anything involving agencies in DC, because obviously we are, we're at the end of one administration and we're about to move into a new one. So, you know, you've been covering the FCC for years now for Law 360. Is there anything we can take away from, you know, this specific story as we're looking for, you know, maybe the early signs of a legacy for the last four years of the FCC, this this uh, era of the FCC? Yes. So under the current FCC, uh, led by Republican FCC Chairman Ajit Pai, He's been very vocal about kind of letting the market drive the telecommunications industry. And this program is really a great example of that. Um, He decided to allow the market to drive these uh, consumer help programs. Mm -hmm. So companies were voluntarily committing to the program. They were sort of opting in. And then there was really no penalty if they didn't uphold those terms. I have heard from Democrats, both in Congress and the FCC, that in a Democratic administration, they would like to see more oversight and accountability for programs like this. So I think that would mean we're not only giving companies the ability to opt into a program and get some great press and help consumers, but we're also following up on that and saying, hey, how are you implementing this? Where are the places that it's gone wrong? How are you helping those people uh, that the pledge didn't work for? Yeah, it's a very different sort of philosophy or you know, overall approach to to the way that these agencies work, something we're going to be seeing a lot of in the next, uh, the next year or so. Um, Kelsey, really appreciate you coming on the show. This is a super interesting story. I would recommend everyone go to Law360, read Kelsey's story. It's really good. It's, uh, it's one of our COVID stories, so it is in front of the paywall, right? So, yeah, so everyone go over there and and give it a read. It's going to be on uh, our podcast page. Kelsey, thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Bill. 
like to end our show every week with something somewhat offbeat. And uh, this week, I think we're talking about uh, an iconic American restaurant chain. We are. Uh, this is this is more COVID related uh, law enforcement type stuff uh, and administrative action. This is about the Cheesecake Factory. Uh, the Cheesecake Factory uh, pay uh, agreed to pay a one hundred twenty five thousand dollars civil civil penalty to the Securities and Exchange Commission to the SEC, um, basically to settle allegations that it had uh, basically hid hid from investors like damaging financial information that was brought on by the pandemic. They yeah. had re- they had reported to investors that they were doing fine. They issued a couple of uh, uh, financial statements in April and or in March and April, basically saying that everything was uh, they, they were basically doing Han Solo pretending to be a stormtrooper on is like everything is fine here. Situation normal. How are uh, you? <laughs> yeah. How are you? <laughs> yes. Even though, uh, SEC, the SEC found that they had uh, at one point as uh, uh, enough money to cover only about 16 more weeks of operation, which uh, mm-hmm. we don't have to get into the weeds of uh, financial disclosure obligations, but that's generally a no-no. You have to be more transparent about your financial status. That's the whole point of being a publicly traded company. Um, you know, the case, it's interesting in like how, you know, how the government will pursue covid uh, adjacent fraud claims, basically. Right. Like I said, this is a relatively small penalty, $125,000. But I really just wanted to talk about it. This is about Cheesecake Factory, and I thought we would just indulge in some cheese take factory. Right. Uh, some and some I, takes. Well, I, and, I, and I'm glad that you brought this story to the show. You, a a former employee of the Rainforest Cafe, I feel, I feel like pretty similar, you know, similar time similar vibes you know both festooned with ludicrous uh uh various you know architecture on the inside yeah um Um, i'm i'm I'm, that's that's as good a place to start as any i don't i don't mean to belabor the point but yes as 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 has been established in show canon i was a i was a safari guide at the rainforest cafe in the summer of 2005 and uh uh, in and it was in a mall because of course it was and in that same mall there was um a cheesecake factory, and I therefore I I have sworn a blood oath against uh, the rank and file of the, of the cheesecake factory, um, and I had a I had a guy the, the guy who trained me actually at Rainforest mm-hmm. Cafe would do it every every day like without fail seven days a week there was a line out the out the Rainforest Cafe restaurant and many like several yards into the mall, and as he was walking up the line into the restaurant, he would say, you know, I hear there's no line at, at, at Cheesecake Factory if you guys want to <laughs> go somewhere else. Um, well, but, but it's I, funny that it's funny that you bring that up, though, because uh, very famously, Cheesecake Factory for a, you know, they weren't like a cool, trendy restaurant, didn't take <laughs> reservations. So it was, was that very, right? Yeah. So there was, uh, you know, growing up, we had a Cheesecake Factory in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, but speak would, on it. But very famously, uh, like multiple times, there would be like fistfights among people at the <laughs> Cheesecake Factory because no one had a reservation. Everyone just needed that that good, good six thousand calorie plate of chicken fingers. Yeah, I mean, at, at this this is good time as any. I mean, this is a we this is a case about about hiding your finances. And if I were trying to hide my, my and again, it's a settlement. We don't know the the truth uh, or fiction of these claims. It's a settlement. No fault mm-hmm. admitted. If I were going to hide something, I would start in the in the depths of my of my ten thousand page menu. I think you could sure, just sure. I think you could just tuck it into the fold there, and nobody would sure. ever find it. They uh, had every. I was doing a little research into Cheesecake Factory oh, well, thank earlier. God somebody did. 
and uh, I was reading one of the it was it was one of the spinoffs. It was like the Grand Lux Cafe. Oh yeah, that's like the higher end. uh, (laughs) They were like, it's inspired by Belgian and French cafes. It also serves Latin American food, Asian fusion, like just every conceivable type of food on earth is served in these restaurants. I only actually went. I'm 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 here like talking smack about about the cheesecake factory i think i only ever actually dined there once i think predating my employment at rainforest cafe right um and and my blood oath as as stipulated but i think i had i think i had like uh like like mexican egg rolls does that sound right like it was it it was something like that it was stuff with like shredded chicken and like pico de gallo or something and that's sure that's an here's a here's a question for you okay what when was the apex mountain of the of oh, the, the the cheesecake factory? When was Cheesecake Factory at the peak of its powers? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Late nineties, early aughts, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, Does that sound I right. I feel like I don't know. I feel like I feel like the, the the they were most in the consciousness. It feels like when you see the inside of a cheesecake factory, you're like it it, it like smells like two thousand seven. Like yeah, it just that's... it just you feel like Spike TV is on one of the TVs. Like it's just. That's probably right, and I feel like the the rise of the social. Obviously, the internet was around in two thousand seven, but the rise of like social media callouts and stuff probably right. put a dent in it because it was like, oh, it's this big stupid thing, and it's like there are people making a lot of the points that we're t- making right now. Well, I do remember very early on in in Twitter's existence, someone wrote some like, oh yeah, there was long that long thread about down, yeah, yeah, about the well, it was about the design because they have it's like mix, it's like a much like the menu, it's like a fusion of. Right, like weird upscale and like downscale design concepts and like lighting fixtures that look like the eye of Sauron and things like that. Um, the mind races, really. But anyway, so uh, <laughs> so yeah, SEC fines, uh, yeah, legal um, news. Yeah, I mean, well, there was actually there's there, there there's some thought that this is like could be a, a I don't know breaking the dam on possible COVID. Uh, you know, fr- like I say, fraud enforcement type stuff. It's not really for us to say at this stage. Um, I don't mean to condescend anybody whose favorite restaurant is the Cheesecake Factory, but um, I don't know. This has been, I think this has been Cheesecake Factory. I hope it becomes a recurring segment. I wouldn't bank on it, but I hope so. We'll see what Amber says next week when she's back. Alex, thank you for joining me. I'm just glad we refrained from doing Yelp reviews. Uh, thank you. <laughs> it was uh, it was great to be here. Uh, as always, we want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, uh, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Kelsey Griffiths, uh, our contributing reporters, Daphne Zhang and Brian Koenig. Uh, music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It is really helpful for people to find our show. It does us a solid. Thanks. Uh, If you want to read more about anything we talked about on today's show, please just head over to our website, law360.com slash podcast. And that's it for this week. Thanks, and we'll see you again next week.